You're listening to a Dwell Community Church production. If you'd like to check out more resources, visit dwellcc.org. Just for context, we're at the end of the book of 1 Thessalonians. We're in the middle of the last chapter. And we talked last week. This is really just about practical advice for having community the way that God wants it. People coming together with the values of God, living the ethics of God, and how that plays itself out in our personal dynamics of our relationships. And he said in 5 verse 11, so encourage each other and build each other up just as you are already doing, that we should be helping one another, loving one another, serving one another, inspiring one another. That this is something that is a, this is what community is all about. Last week we talked about this in the context of leadership and supporting your leaders. You know, we have people who step up and serve. We talked about how leadership is different in a biblical context. It's not climbing up the ladder and, and bearing down on other people to get them what you want to do, but it's serving other people and helping to bear the responsibility for the direction of the group. It's all about taking a personal interest in each other's lives. That's what we're talking about here. And so we get to verse 14, and this is what we're going to spend our entire time tonight, is this one verse, because this is such a potent verse. This is so powerful. This has been used in my life many times as a leader. You're trying to figure out what to do. You're you're in situations where you got people and, and you got to do something. And this is a verse that I go to regularly because it's so rich in wisdom in terms of how to handle different situations. Look at what he says. We urge you, brothers, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, and be patient with everyone. On the surface, on the face of it, very simple, but when you dig down into it, you get into the complexities of human connectedness and relating, and you start seeing how useful this kind of wisdom is. He's talking about the importance of having different approaches with different people in different situations. You know, one of the things that we're tempted to do is we're tempted to abbreviate everything and boil it down and we come up with one answer for everything. Just love God more. That's what you need to do, right? Just fall more in love with Jesus or I'll just pray for you. And while those things could be very well intended, they're not always that helpful. And the Bible actually gives us wisdom on getting deeper with one another. He says, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak. That there are these different categories of things that we can do to help the people who are in different situations. And this word admonishment is one that we don't use real often. It has a negative connotation like rebuke or correct or scold. The word here in the Greek is nuthateo, which just means to instruct or to to put a thought in someone's mind, to cause them to consider their ways or to cause them to consider a different direction or to even help them see the truth of what they're actually doing. That's what that's about. And essentially, this is used to talk about these are ways that we should correct 
people who are wrong. And that's not a real cool thing. That's not something our culture is real into these days, is that word, the W word, wrong. We see something like that, that we're supposed to correct other people. That's very uncomfortable. It seems very judgmental. And I think we look at a verse like that, admonish the unruly, and we say, well, who am I to correct someone else? You know, I don't think I have all the answers, and I know that I don't live a perfect life, and I know that I have problems, and I'm not sure I want people throwing my problems in my face, so why would I want to throw someone else's problem in their face? Another thing we might think is, well, everyone has their own truth. They're just living their truth. Who am I to tell them that their truth is wrong? You live your truth. You be your truth. I'll be mine. And we won't correct one another. Others might say, well, doesn't the Bible tell us not to judge? That seems like contradictory. How can you admonish somebody? First of all, you have to decide they're unruly. You have to judge them as an unruly person. And then you got to tell them they're unruly and how they should stop. Judge, judge, judge. But the Bible says, judge not. How do we reconcile these kinds of thoughts? Well, let's go through them. How am I to correct someone else? Well, one of the things that we have to understand is Paul is writing this to a body of believers, people who have decided to believe in Jesus Christ and the authority of Scripture, right? And so this isn't just for everyone. It's not that we are called to go around whenever we see an unruly person and be like, I need to admonish that person. This is in-house. This is how we treat people in our spiritual family. And the rules are different for us and how we would interact with each other. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5.12, what have I to do with judging outsiders? I don't have any interest in, in telling other people how they need to live their life if they don't want to hear it. But do you not judge those who are in the church? There is a responsibility for people inside the church and how they handle and connect with and talk and deal with other people inside the church. But this admonishment is not done from a place of frustration or contempt. The idea here is not someone's doing annoying, something annoying and you sit back and you watch them do it over and over again and finally you pop a fuse and you attack somebody for their unruly behavior. That is not God's way. In Acts 20, verse 31, uh, he says, Therefore, be on alert, remembering that day and night, night, that night and day, for a period of three years, Paul says, I did not cease to admonish each one with tears. How do you admonish someone with tears? The way you admonish someone with tears is you see a harmful way within them, a fellow believer in Christ who believes the same thing that you do, who loves the same God that you do, and who's doing something that is self-destructive or harmful to others, and you're moved in pain and compassion to try to plead with that person to stop destroying their lives or to stop harming others. It's a somber thing. 
It's a painful thing. But it's something that we do not out of frustration or contempt or hate, but it's something that we are called to do as the family of God because of our love for one another. Well, I could see maybe a point there, but you know, everyone has their own truth, right? Wrong! That is incorrect. This is one of the things that I've just got to say, our culture is screwed up. Now, people do not have their own truth. The truth is the truth. What people do have are opinions. They have experiences and they have perspectives. And that's what we mean when we say, live your truth, speak your truth. But, and those things are very important. They're very valuable. We should not uh, disparage the opinions, experiences, and perspectives of others. But that is not truth. That is not their truth. People have those things. They also have an incredible capacity to lie to themselves. If you live your truth and I live my truth and where our truths intersect or contradict, it is evil of me or you to discuss that, then we are living shallow, meaningless relationships. If you want to get real, if you want to have a successful marriage, if you want to have a successful friendship, if you want to be a successful parent, the, well, I'm living my truth excuse is not going to work. Because it's the only way that we can talk about anything real. is to get into not your truth, not my truth, but the truth. And fortunately, Christians have a common external standard for truth that does not come from us. It does not come from our opinions. It does not come from our experiences. It does not come from our perspectives. It's the word of God. God spoke to various prophets in various ways and told us what the truth is on all kinds of things how morality works, how character works, what is our purpose, what is our meaning, what is our plight. All of these things are things that God, the creator of the universe and the fashioner of the human soul has revealed the mysteries of creation and its importance and its meaning through the Bible. And so as the family of God, What we do is we come together, we agree, it's not my truth, it's not your truth, it's God's truth, and we have a responsibility to lovingly help fellow Christians who are self-deceived, who have convinced themselves that they don't have a problem when they do, have convinced themselves that they don't hurt other people when they are has convinced themselves that they're following the word of God when they're not. This is what love, a part, an important part of what love, community, friendship, and connectedness is supposed to be all about. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 4.14, I do not write these things to shame you, but to admonish you as my beloved children. 
I'm not trying to make you feel bad. I'm trying to help you see what's right and good. I'm trying to help you see what God wants. And I'm going to take you to the word of God to help make my case for what God wants. I'm not going to talk to you about my personal preferences. I'm going to talk to you about what God says. Hugely important. In fact, becoming a Christian, one way to put it is, it means surrendering your truth. When you say, I have my truth, what you're ultimately saying is, you're the authority on what truth is for you. That you decide. And God says, that's, that's his job. That you don't have a truth. He has a truth. And you have a decision. You have a powerful decision that God has given you, which is whether or not you want to accept God's truth or you want to be your own God. But to say, I have my truth and no one can tell me that I'm wrong is to set yourself up as God. Accepting God's truth and saying your truth and what you say is good and what you say is right is how I'm going to live my life. And I know I'm gonna fail, I'm gonna fall short, I'm not gonna do it perfectly, I'm gonna be a hypocrite at times. But I am going to subject my will to your truth. That's how we become a Christian. It starts with understanding that sin, immoral behavior is wrong. It's evil. That evil should be destroyed. That we are all guilty of violating God's moral law and that we deserve destruction. But that Jesus Christ came lived a perfect life and then was crucified and that God took the punishment that we deserve for all of the evil that we've committed and he poured it out on himself and the person of Jesus Christ so that we could be forgiven. That's God's truth. Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way and the truth and the life no one comes to the Father but through me. That might not be a truth that mingles well with your truth. But that's a truth that you've got to wrestle with. It's not about being a good person. It's not about going to church. It's about faith. It's about a, a very important question. Who is God? When you say, I speak my truth, you are saying you are your own God. When Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, no one comes to the Father but through me, what he was saying is, I am your God. Will you accept me? What about being told not to judge? If the Bible is truly from God, if it's truly the word of God, how can it contradict itself? What the Bible means when it says don't judge is it means don't condemn. 
What's never our job and what we are never to do is look at somebody else and judge their motives and judge their heart and say, God is against you, you're going to hell. That is God's job and God's job alone. We don't decide who goes to heaven or hell. We don't condemn others. We can look at others and we can look at the trajectory of their life and we can issue warnings and concerns. But we do not have the authority to tell other people what to do. We have the responsibility to warn other people about the direction that they're headed. We are called to hold fellow believers accountable. We are not called to control them. We are not called to condemn them. We are not called to belittle them. We are called to watch their backs even if they hate us for us, even if they reject us for it, even if they get angry and shake their fists and punch us in the face, we are called to stand on the truth, God's truth, in love. And there's a level of not condemnation, but evaluation that goes along with that. As we walk through this life together and we have community, we are going to bump up against each other's rough edges. And some of those rough edges are pretty nasty. And we're paying a heavy price for not allowing God to show us the truth of what needs to change in our lives. And the primary way God will do that is through other believers. Sure, sometimes the Holy Spirit just speaks to us. It shows us that we need to change. We get convicted. Sure, sometimes we're reading the Bible and we're just smacked right in the face with the word of God and something that needs to change. But more often than not, and the more you get mature in your faith and you start getting into the deep, deep, real bottom of the pit of the soul root issues in your life, You're going to need other people who are experiencing and seeing that to reflect back to you the inconsistencies between the word of God and your heart. And that's why Paul is is saying this and getting into this whole thing with them. Proverbs 27, 17 says, iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens in the other. It's a very famous verse. It's this idea that iron, you know, from the ancient world's perspective is, is so hard. How do you grind pieces of iron into a finer edge? And they're saying the only way to do that is to get another piece of iron. And that people rub up against each other and cause the rough parts to become smoother and smoother and smoother. This is a vision for maturity and growth. And it can be very painful. One other, I think, important qualification to this, he says, we urge you, brothers, admonish, but the people that we admonish are believers and they are unruly. What is that? What does it mean to be unruly? Again, we go to the Greek, the original language this is written in, and we see this word ataktos. Admonish the ataktos. And that is a fairly broad term 
used to mean a bunch of things, but they're kind of all in the same category. Look at some of the ways this word is translated and used. To act without discipline, to be irresponsible, to do nothing, or to evade one's obligations. He's saying admonish fellow believers who act without discipline, who act irresponsibly, who do nothing, and who evade one's obligations. Some of your Bibles just say lazy. But that is not the, even the primary meaning of this word unruly. This is somebody who knows that they're doing wrong, that they're going against the word of God, that they're acting out, they're lashing out, and they're doing harm. In the Theological Dictionary of the New Testament, it says this does not fit the first instance lay emphasis on sloth, but rather an irresponsible attitude to the obligation of the work. You are an ambassador of Jesus Christ put here on earth to spread the truth and love of God, to serve, to lift others up, and to be a witness to him. And when you do things that harm that witness that damage the work that God has chosen you for, you are a tactos. And we need to be admonished. I think another simple way to put it is people who do more harm than good. That are hurting the work of God. These are people who know the truth They agree with the authority of Scripture, and they are either self-deceived, they don't see how they're not following God, or they're hard-hearted, they do see it, and they don't care. That's the attack toss. That's the unruly. People who are damaging themselves, others, and the reputation of God by their behavior. They should be grabbed and pulled aside by a brother or sister in Christ and pled with in love to consider the consequences of their actions. So admonish the unruly. Encourage the faint-hearted. Faint-hearted is such an interesting word. A lot of times Greek will take two words and just put them together to make a new word. And the two words that are put together here means uh, a little and breath. This oligosukos means to encourage those with little breath, who are out of breath. Help those, encourage those who are burnt out, who are anxious, who are low on resources. And sukos is often used to mean spirit. The word breath and the word spirit have the same word in Greek. So this is talking about somebody who has little faith, or who is burned out, or who is drawn thin. They're out of breath, they're tired, and they don't, they're not engaged. And we're told to encourage these people, not to admonish. This is where the wisdom of this verse, I think, becomes so important, because sometimes you see somebody who's exhausted and burned out, and you think they're being unruly. And you say, I need to go admonish this attack toss. And it's instead somebody who's 
suffering and who has the right mindset and has the right interest, but what they need is not admonishment. What they need is a shoulder to cry on. They need someone to have some vision for them, some love for them, some encouragement for them, someone who is willing to lift them up and help carry their load down the road for a short time. We have to know the difference between the unruly person and the faint-hearted person because the prescription is totally different, but they can look very similar. Isaiah 35, three says, encourage the exhausted, strengthen the feeble, say to those with anxious heart, take courage and fear not. Sometimes when we feel overwhelmed and anxious and tired and burned out and we feel like we don't know where to go and don't know what to do, all we need is someone in genuine care and love to put their arm around us and say, let's, let's do this together. How can I pray for you? Let me tell you about the impact you've had on my life. I know you're burned out. Thank you for paying that price because it has helped me and my life in this way being willing to bring some joy and some love and compassion. Don't go in and beat down someone who's out of breath. Lift them up. He also says, take tender care of those who are weak. This is about taking care of those who cannot take care of themselves. This is about moving toward people that other people want to avoid. Asthenes is the, is the word here for weak. It means without strength, sickly, and unimpressive. This is not a state in terms of someone becomes this. This is someone who's experiencing this, that this is, they have real deep-seated problems that keep them from being able to thrive. Romans 15.1 says, now we who are strong ought to bear the weakness of those without strength and not just please ourselves. A part of the core value of what it means to be a follower of Christ is to take the strength that God gives you and impart it to the weak, to those who cannot help themselves. Compassion must be at the root of who we are because it's at the root of who God is. He is the ultimate source of strength and power in the universe. And yet he has used that strength to save us. Even while we shook our fists at him in defiance and drove the nails into his arms, he cried out, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do the ultimate source of strength and unlimited power in the universe used sacrificially for the concerns of the needs of the sickly, the weak, and the unimpressive, namely all of us compared to God. But having these kinds of problems is also not a valid excuse for being selfish. That's one of the things we really wrestle with when we're trying to figure out, okay, is this person unruly? Are they faint-hearted or are they weak? Because sometimes there are confounding issues where one 
disease can present as another. And how do we sort that out? How do we look at that? How do we help the weak without enabling the selfish? Because it is not loving to enable a selfish person. And it is loving to help a weak person. And we all have problems. So how do we sort that out and and navigate through those waters? Listen, we all have problems, but some of us have extra challenges that make it more difficult to find ways to serve. Not everyone is gifted the same. Some of us have serious psychological issues, chemical issues, physical issues. And the bar for the value of a human being is not what they can produce. It's not what they bring to the table or what they can accomplish. It's that they are born a creation of the all-powerful God of the universe. And we are called to love those people, help those people, not because of what they can offer or what they can contribute, because Jesus Christ thought they were worth dying for. And so we, we get into the very murky waters of what is a disability that keeps someone from being able to serve and what is an attitude that, makes, that demonstrates someone's unwillingness to serve. And we also have to realize that God loves to use the weak things in powerful ways because it is an incredible demonstration of his greatness. If you stick around and you build real relationships here, you will see people that are very unimpressive change and grow into people who do amazing things because that's the way that God works. It's a question of willingness. It's a question of the heart. It's not a question of ability. Are you willing to take direction? Are you willing to be reproved? Are you willing to examine the truth? Are you willing to look at different options? Are you willing to try to grow, to try to serve, to try to be used by God? Some people need to go to counseling and get some of their things worked out so that they can be healed and then go forth and and be used in other people's lives. Some people need meds, if prescribed by a doctor, to help work out chemical imbalances. The unruly member may have those problems or may not, but they will refuse to take available steps to deal with the problem. That's Part of how you sort that out is somebody who has issues or problems, is taking from others, is being disruptive, is tearing things down, and you come in and love and you sort things out and you provide different options. Like, do you need help? Do you need counseling? Do you need to go to a doctor? Do you need someone to to read with you? Do you need, how can we serve you? How can we help you? And they take and take and take and they never grow. How do you tell the difference between the unruly and the weak in that sense? Well, Paul's got the answer to that too. It's called be patient with everyone. That word patience means long-suffering. Take your time in your diagnosis. Give people every chance and every opportunity 
and see, look for even just the smallest amount of willingness, the seed, the spark of, of, of willing to grow, of willing to change, of willing to try. Yes, we will stumble and we will fall and it will be a mess and it will be difficult, but God doesn't judge us by the outside. He looks at the heart and the heart is revealed in the actions, in what we do. I think when he says everyone, we should be patient with everyone, we run into that tension again of what's the difference between being patient and being an enabler? You know, I wanna be a patient person, but I don't wanna be a soft person who just lets people continue to destroy and use and to cause calamity and pain. What's the difference between being patient and being soft? A patient person accepts the fact that people change slowly. They're willing to pay the price over a very long period of time in order to help see someone grow. A soft person accepts no change forever. They don't look for change, they don't ask for change, and they aren't even looking or care whether change happens. A patient person continues to warn, encourage, and admonish those who need help. A soft person may appear friendly, they may be nice, but they have no vision and no willingness to actually invest in a person who needs love and needs direction and needs care. A patient person does the hard work of continuing to invest even when it feels like, I don't know if this is going anywhere. A soft person ignores glaring issues that cause harm. Oh, that's just so-and-so. That's just who they are. It's a very cynical thing at the end of the day. It, it, it masquerades in acceptance, but in reality, it's indifference. A patient person makes people feel secure. If you're a part of a community where people are patient, you know that they see your problems, but you know that they've got your back and that they're going to address those things. It can be hard, but you'll be challenged and motivated because you'll see how the investment of other people helps you grow and how your investment in other people helps them grow. And it becomes a very exciting thing to be a part of. A soft group creates a hospital of dependence where no one ever gets better. It's hell. You think, you know, oh, we're being so loving and so accepting and so warm and everybody's coming in, but everyone's taking and no one's giving and nothing is changing. And it becomes a shelter for selfishness. And at the center of it is usually a person or two who's getting off on the idea that these people need them, but not really lifting a finger to help them. It's disgusting. The patient person creates a team of people who are able to suffer because they know that their suffering produces change. A soft person creates a group of consumers who only stick around if there's, as long as there's something to take. patient person sees real, gradual change occurring in people's lives. 
The soft people fake it. They fake it until they don't make it. This is why I think this verse is so important because this is the reality. It doesn't matter if you're a leader, if you're a member of the body of Christ, if you're somebody who wants to be used by God in other people's lives, you're gonna come across people who are unruly. You're gonna come across people who are faint-hearted. You're gonna come across people who are weak. And you're gonna come across people who are a combination of all three. And the call from God is to encourage, admonish, and help. But you have to understand where people are coming from and what they need. And then you also have to see within yourself, where are you at with those things right now and what do you need? The bottom line here is effective Christian communities figure this out by working together, the leading of the Holy Spirit, and persevering in the word of God. Effective Christian communities have members who aren't afraid to speak the truth in love, who will work these things out and will stand for change, but do it in a patient way, in a compassionate way. Effective communities stand against the selfish tide of laziness, selfishness, and lame excuses. We're not going to reject you, but we're also not going to accept that you can't be a person who is able to serve someone else. No matter how many problems you have, God can use you and will use you in the life of other people. I've talked to many other pastors over the last year as I've gone out and tried to connect and work with other pastors. And one of the things they often say is, you know, you guys are real hardcore and you're real into serving and you're real into the word of God and that's cool. But what about the people who just can't do anything? Is there a place for them in your church? My answer is no, because they don't exist. I don't believe in that. I don't believe that there's anyone who's been made by God who doesn't have something to offer the kingdom of God and the people of God. And God help us if we ever do. If that is a belief in a way that we start to see, well, this person's just too screwed up to serve anyone else, then we have lost a fundamental thing at the heart of what it means to have God's perspective that all his children are precious and all of them have something of value to bring to the table for the cause of God. Encourage the discouraged and understand the importance of lending others strength. Why don't I just pray and then we'll go outside and hang out. God, thank you for dying for our sins on the cross and thank you for putting people in our lives that have learned from you how to love others sacrificially. Protect us, God. Help us to to continue to strive to grow and to change, to be compassionate, to be kind, and to be honest. And to not plateau, to not be okay with the lack of change within ourselves. And help us to have the courage, the compassion, and the care for others to the extent that we're not going to be content to watch them plateau either. Help us to grow into the people that you 
created us to be. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. This has been a Dwell Community Church production.